and welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Tony Waddington, Do You Dream in Colour? That was a recent single of his. You should be familiar with much of Tony's work. He's a, a multi-award winning songwriter, record producer and much more. And of course, as we do in the Strange Brew, we'll be focusing on a cross-section of tracks from across the artist's career. In this case, it's Tony. Huge welcome, Tony. Thank you, Jason. And welcome to you. No, it's, a, it's it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, so you've released quite a bit of material over the last year or so. Was that connected to the situation in relation to lockdown or COVID? Or is this something that you've all been sort of thinking about for a while? People ask me why I stopped having hits in the sort of 90s or something, whatever it was. But there came a point in my life, and it's, uh, it's maybe strange, difficult for other people to, to understand, but I, I just swore I would never go into a studio with another pop group. Yeah. Because it's a kind of mad madhouse, you know, and and I decided, um, no, thanks, I'm not doing that. But and I suppose rather like sort of some woman giving birth, there comes a point where you think that you know maybe I've forgotten that was, and and maybe I'd like to do that again. And so I think it's a bit like that. I started going into the studios more, and but probably more than that, um, I've always recorded other artists, other than when I was a teenager, who played in yeah. bands in Germany and state in America and things like that. In recent times, I was quite surprised to to find that some people didn't didn't mind listening to me singing. That is actually much easier than recording another artist because yeah, you're in control. Yeah, well, there's less discussion. You, you know, I I know what I want to do. I it's what I I don't I don't make any great sort of. I'm not trying to to uh, do anything other than that which is me. Quite a few people asked, why don't I do that myself? They'd heard a demo or something and all that kind of thing. And so uh, I thought, well, why not? And I've, I've been quite enjoying it, really. And that tracking that we just played at Dear Dream in Colour, for me, it sort of harks back in terms of its harmonies to some of the themes of, of the 1960s. Is that actually a, a new track of yours? Yes, yes, it is. And, and basically, I, I suppose... Whenever I sing or play, I can only kind of sing in how I sang in, in, in Liverpool bands and Hamburg. That's what my voice is like. And I can sort of mimic Elvis Presley and all that sort of thing. We all can, can't we, or Frank Sinatra or somebody. But basically, I can only sing what I'd call properly, hit the proper notes and stuff, if I sing in that what now is a sort of vague Liverpool accent. I suppose any big city like London, you get the ethnicity beaten out of you very quickly. There's a certain sound, I, I know this, and a certain style, a certain way of singing uh, Liverpool people do. It's a, it's a bit of a sort of foghorn sort of. It's a bit, it's a bit, a bit coarse. And when we played in Germany and places like that, you know, in the, in, the, in the dark old days, I couldn't understand why people liked it, but they did. Because it sounded so loud and raucous kind of thing, as opposed to, you know, all this, oh, baby, I love you. So, you know, it sounded like, come on, shake it. You know, it was like, it was just, you know, it sounded nonsense to us. We really wanted to like it. But I can only sing like that, really. And, and really, if I'm playing, I can only identify playing in a band like that. It's natural for me to just sort of play, play that sort of track, like Dreaming Colour. Is the plan to keep releasing uh, singles or do you have plans to chronicle it all in a, an album? Uh, yes, well, I, I think I probably will. It, I always feel like a bit of a fraud 
I always feel like I'm not really a singer, you know, I'm not really, because I never was an entertainer. I was never, I was never a sort of sung and danced man, as it were. Mm. I was always a bit studious and a bit of a, bit of a nerd when I was, when I was a teenager. And I kind of played this, um, yeah, I played guitar and, and I, I'd, I'd studied classical music and all sorts of things. So I was never really much of a, a heartthrob pop star. I never was. And so it's a bit odd to me singing, really. Though I did, you know, as you do, you know, you don't do And so we've been touching on it, uh, you know, as part of discussing your your new material. Let's go back about 60 years. Were Lee Curtis and and the All-Stars your your first band? Because our next song being uh, But Let's Stomp. Was that your first group? No, no, it wasn't. Um, Oh. I actually played in, in, in originally, I remember going along to the Cavern Club, which was then a jazz club, a traditional jazz club. And they didn't like sort of louds playing rock music in that. It was all a bit smart, you know, it was a bit uh, bohemian, I'd say, um, with uh, people with beards and horn rimmed glass, you know, dark glass, and women with big sweaters and sort of glasses of wine. It was, it was all very um, like, like that, you know, and it's sort of considered quite sophisticated and bohemian. And I was working in, in, in various jobs, and one of them was a solicitor's office. And we finished our day, and we finally got this gig with um, on the cavern, and um, and we went along, and 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 but we were called the Beatniks, and that that was like because people never understood the Beatles, the Beat, they thought it was Beatles, like B B double E, it's B D B E A, and we were the Beat, you see, like the Beatniks. We weren't pretending to be, we didn't think we were beat, uh, like bohemian beatniks. Yeah. It was just a catchy name, we thought, and it was the beat. Anyway, so the DJ and on that night uh, was Bob Wooler, I think, and he, he announced us as, he said, now on stage tonight, the beatniks. And the whole audience just fell about laughing. Oh. Well, because we, we didn't look like beatniks at all. <laughs> we had, I had my little suit on and things like that. And, you know, it was sort of... Um, we weren't trying to be beatniks, but you know, you're a teenager. We hadn't thought anything through, really, and so we changed our name to the the Django, I think, and then, then like after Django Reinhardt, yeah. and then then it became um, the Django Beat, and then it became the Django Beats, which I didn't like at all. And in those days, we did, did everything by telephone. People, you know, got a gig or got thing by you know, and of course, whenever we turned up. They never understood the name properly over the phone. So we'd turn up and it would be the sort of tangle beats or something on the poster, or like the jungle beans. And like, it was just terrible. So it was, it was one of those terribly teenage frustrating things, you know. It was an okay band. It was, it was, it's extraordinary to think that like the Beatles were on like one week and we were on another week sort of thing on the Casbah. <laughs> just local boys, you know, local lads, really. And, and I think I, I joined Lee Curtis because I'd heard they were going to Germany and um, and you got some money. We were broke. We were absolutely broke. And I, I just sort of scraped through the got in and went. You know. It wasn't my ideal musical situation. But then everyone was just, we, we were really in those days, the Beatles and everybody were just like function bands, really. Yeah. Made other people's material. It seems hard to imagine now. And was that where you met in that band where you met Wayne Bickerton, or did you yes. play with him before? Who was it? No, that, that I hadn't met him before. That that was it. 
In fact, I, re- I, I recognized him as having seen him in the dole queue. <laughs> you know, we need the bass player and, and, and the guitarist, said, one other guitarist, Frank Bowen, said, um, oh, I know this guy. And so we went and came out and thought, oh, I recognize him, yeah. Oh, I don't know why I recognize him. But... Best was was famously in the band after the Beatles had got rid of him. Yeah. Well, the band was managed by a guy called Joe Flannery, who died recently, bless him. He's a nice guy. And I think when Pete left the Beatles, he talked Pete into joining our band. Then when Lee Curtis went his own way, or we went our own way, I can't remember which, then um, we were then the Pete Best four, I think, then we became the Pete Best combo, I think. Mm. And, uh, And we went to the States and carried on being broke. Were you recording over in the States in Pete Best and Yeah, well, that's how I ended up doing record production because with Pete, my first producer, record producer, that I recognised as such who knew what he was doing was Joe Meek. Wow. Um, so we used to record up in the Angel there. Well, the, if you see the film Telstar, that, that's like I, I, it's like I'm there, you know. <laughs> and Joe taught me, quite a lot of I learned quite a lot of Joe about recording because you know I was always very nerdy and very interested in you know mics and speakers and whatnot. and then when we went to the States it was another big learning curve then why American records sound so good and and so when I came back from the States I think Tony Blackburn said to me he thought he thought we were American producers right he said god I always thought you were American but uh, well, because we had spent a lot of time in America and, and, and recorded and stuff, you see. So we, we, 
I'd, I'd spent a lot of time with American musicians in studios, and I began to see a different way of doing things. I suppose we were dealing with people who were professionals, hard professionals who'd been doing it for years and years. Whereas in this country, everybody was kind of amateurs. All the bands were kind of amateur, really. So were we. We didn't know what we were doing, really. And you were writing, the way I feel about you, being an example as well as producing? Yes, well, I've always written songs. I, I suppose I, I wrote songs before I played in any pop band. I was writing songs since I was about 10 years old, really. And I was thinking about songs when I was about seven or eight. So I was always writing, and then I played classical guitar, and I played different things like that. And so joining a band, I, I was geared up for it, really. But I just wasn't much of an entertainer. And in those days, everyone thought of, of people as being an, an entertainer. You know, like, you like this bloke from Hollywood. You had, a, like, this sparkling smile. And, and, and whereas I was just a sort of nerd playing the guitar kind of thing. And, and when I assume you must have had a, a sort of publishing deal and was that that got you into producing and, and, and working with other groups then with Wayne I was a, a staff producer and staff writer for Decca yeah Decca was was like universal at the time it was like joining Decca was like joining the civil service there weren't that many record companies or independent ones anyway I mean there, there was the big ones there was EMI there was Decca High records, and you know, there, there weren't many. You know, unless you were recording with those record companies, you were got you were nowhere. Um, but then later on, as, as as bands got successful in the sixties, people started to their own independent record labels, and uh, myself included. 
But the the first track that we've got from that period when you were back in in the UK is Toby Twirl, Romeo and Juliet, nineteen sixty eight. Obviously on the Decca label. I've actually heard the acetate of that, and you're singing the verses to to guide the band f- through that song. Um, well, I did that a lot. I I I I I've done more guide vocals than I than I care to think of. Uh, the problem with doing that is you're often not singing in your own key. You're singing in someone else's key. And um, and so therefore it might be too low for me. So you end up sort of singing down your and your boots going sort of like, you know, trying to get in their key. So my voice always sounded a bit like dull, and which it does naturally. But um, and they used to jokingly call my voice the voice of doom. <laughs> I was singing in somebody else's key. I was either too low or too high. Just, just for an example, uh, with Toby Twill, would the label present a band or a series of bands to you and Wayne, or would you ever bring a band in? Oh, no, you bring a band in, and they, they don't, don't present it. Sometimes something might fall your way yeah. because of circumstance or because of whatever. Generally speaking, I'd say that, yes, yeah, sometimes bands came your way, but also you, you're obviously supposed to discover some yourself. But there were, there were very different days the, the way you looked at the whole thing was very different uh, before the accountants took over. I mean. so you, ha- you actually had more freedom in terms of actually finding the acts, Absolutely, yes. deciding the material, producing, writing. Yeah, even as, as an independent producer, which I have been, um, a big record company like RCA or something like that, you'd go along and say, I've seen this really good band or this really good thing. And they'd say, oh, right, um, we know we need a budget to do it. They'd say, How much do you need? And things like that. They really just left that up to you, like who the band was and who that. So they didn't say, oh, no, we, we only take this sort of band. They just thought, well, you have good taste or you, you, you recognise something good, so we trust you. But what happened was there was a point where accountants, or I guess accountants, started painting by numbers. They'd, there'd be a hit record, and so they'd, they'd think, well, what we need is another record like that. And they keep making these records all the same. Not how the 60s was at all.
Our next track is Spanish band uh, Los Iberos, uh, Summertime Girl, a great pop song of yours here. Were, were they actually over in, in London for this? Well, some of the band were and some of the band weren't. They right. were funny days, though. So there was all sorts of rules why what, what people could do and not do. You know, there was all sorts of uh, things whereby you couldn't do this and you couldn't do that and you couldn't do... I'm not saying the unions were wrong. I'm just saying, but but some of it was a bit over the top, really. Yeah. So was it like the, the, the singer was over here? Yeah, I think the singer came over. Uh, the two singers came over, but I, I I never tried to fathom out the rules of who to who could do what. I just said, well, whatever, let's just do what we can. So they they were quite a popular, I mean, very popular band in in the Spanish speaking countries. Oh they? yes, in Spain they were. Yes, they're very popular. To my surprise, actually, because I I never put much store by my songs. I could never understand what why songs I wrote were popular. Because it wasn't a, I don't think, a, a hit over here, people won't be familiar with it. But when you hear it now, a fresh, even now after all these years, it's packed full of hooks. Yeah. A pop song is a pop song. Mm. I suppose I'd played in bands for years and years and years. I played all, all my days in bloody bands, you know, everywhere. I suppose in Hamburg, we were playing like, we'd start at seven o'clock in the evening, play for an hour, we're off for two hours. We'd be on for now, and we and that went on to about four in the morning sometimes later, you know. So we played a lot every night, day in, day out, month in, month out, just, just played like that. And so I suppose the music was indelibly stamped on my brain, I suppose. Summertime, 
a song that people will be familiar with because it's been a hit over here in the states and and in Europe and as a scene of recent reissue on for record store day is the flirtations nothing but a heartache which is a bit of a northern soul favorite but they were yeah, an American true. girl group who came over to England weren't they yes that's right and um, started making records with them well, first of all there was a pop approach to them uh, which they still have some of those records and I think that nothing but a heartache I was I was kind of we were in the studios and um, we, we we put that track in. That was just a live track the band played and they sang. It was just one of so I didn't really attach much importance to it. We didn't we didn't make any great effort about it. It just sort of and I think we were in the studios later and and, and I think uh, John who we'd been in the drifters and I think he was he still does go out with one of the girls that were married to her, I'm not sure. And um he said, that's the track, that, that, that one. He pointed at him in a heart. He said, that's the track. And I said, oh, no, no, not really. And I, I wasn't rather unconvinced about it, but um, but it did go off in the States quite big. Not so much this country, but, but the States are huge. It's got a real energy to it. Well, I think I think it was a bit chaotic that day. We had a drummer called Ronnie Verrill, who was a big band drummer, and, and Herbie Flowers on the bass, if I remember rightly. Yeah. And uh, they're all good players, big band. But it, it was just a live session. And, and I think as we arrived in the studio to set up about 10 o'clock in the morning, the drums were stolen out the back of the van. <laughs> and so it was like we had to go and get new drums quickly. And it was chaotic, really. And by the time we got around to doing that, it was slammed down, you know. And so I think there was a kind of um, manic sort of feel about it all, you know. It was just one take, though, I remember. Sometimes that's all you need, isn't it? Often the way, yes. Often the way you you go back and you do this and do several. Often it's just a waste of time. You're better with the first first thing you did. Did you work with them much after this? Yeah, I worked with them the other day actually. Oh. Didn't seem for years, but then recently I've done some work with them. Oh, that's great. You know, lost contact with them for years, but then then recently made a few records with them. Or, you know, well, well they're not out yet.
next we have one of the biggest acts on the podcast show today, Tom Jones and Can't Stop Loving You. Another American hit here. Was that a, a publishing demo that got to uh, Tom's management or was that something that, that you would win? Yes, that's right. I think it was recorded by the, the Flirtations first. And I didn't have much to do with it going to Tom. I, I, you know, I just heard he'd done it rather than I wasn't in the studios, nothing like that. He just did a version of it, really. Were there certain songs that you thought that you'd would be good for other artists, therefore you'd sort of get the demos out, or were there songs that you'd basically... Yes, but of course, in those days, publishers were publishers, if right. you know I mean. You know, they, they took a big percentage and they supported the writer. Yeah. And then you got all the blokes coming along and, and just in pop books saying, oh, I could get the publishing rights on that, I could be your publisher. And of course, they didn't understand at all. They didn't support writers in any way at all. And so in those days, the publisher would support you and put the recordings to maybe a major artist. Right. I, 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 I had a retainer of, of um, a publisher long before, um, long before I was a producer in Decca, which kept me going in the north of England very nicely, thank you. You know, well, not nicely, but, but I had a, a, a retainer and able to write and continue writing. What would happen was, in those days, the publishers, like the record companies, would take a huge percentage. Yeah. And you get people nowadays talking, they don't really understand at all. They say, rip off record companies, taking so much. But the, the risk was enormous because the, the advance was non-recoupable. They couldn't get it back. And, and, and the studio costs were, were, were ginormous. Yeah. And, 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 and with the publisher... He was sort of supporting you with an income and, and studio costs for demos. Are, so, and that money wasn't owed back. It, you, you just lost it. They just lost it. And so they did take a big percentage, but which doesn't help a writer or a, a recording artist once they're established, but it really helps aspiring writers and, and, and things. So I kind of rather lament the, the passing of that era. Some people say 
your face I see in my memory. I close my eyes and then I start to live again. Your hope. Like it used to be I open my eyes and then I'm on my own again Can't stop loving you Can't stop wanting you Can't stop song better to have loved which was by lena anderson but this was your collaboration with uh, benny and Bjorn from abba i think this song even in won a song festival in tokyo and, and was number one in sweden so yes that's right but, so, but how did you get involved with benny and Bjorn to start off with well i was saying before that that in decker i was a staff writer and i was a, a staff producer so um Sometimes things would just come your way through the organization itself. And somebody gave, gave me a demo. Uh, well, it was my, my publisher, who I was, a, who I was a staff writer with. And they gave me a demo of um, a Benny and Bjorn's song called Cecilia. Yeah. And I remember thinking, because I've had a classical background myself, I remember thinking, these guys really know how to put a melody together. And I thought, that's interesting. And they wanted me to do an English lyric to it. And so I did an English lyric to it. And I rather liked it. Still do, actually. And at the time, the powers that be in, in, in Decker said to me, oh, why are you bothering with these Swedish blokes? I mean, <laughs> you know, whatever came out of Sweden. And I said, well, I said, I like the construction of the melodies. And they said, oh, construction, who cares about things like that, you know? That's how I got involved with Benny and Bjorn uh, on, on those things. After that, they, they gave me Better to Have Loved, which was the um, number one in Sweden and, and won the Tokyo Song Festival with them. 
They used to come over here and we used to get very drunk. It wasn't just a, a correspondence thing. You did actually meet up. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. We used to meet up. I don't know how many times I've, I've, I've said this, but my ex-wife used to say, you know, she said, God, we'll end up getting drunk again. <laughs> They've come over and, 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 um, and I'd say, oh, well, you know, we would. We'd end up getting drunk again. We used to go to Trader Vicks by, by the Hilton, underneath the Hilton, which I believe still looks exactly the same. It looks like a Hawaiian bar of the 70s. It's real retro, apparently, as it was then. And the cocktails, they had these enormous cocktails with, like, roses floating in, like a looked like a salad bowl, you know, so whatever was in them. And of course, it would end up getting a bit oh, tipsy, it's pretty mildly. Anyway, so, um, and one time... Um, I think I was I was in the kitchen mate, doing something recently. My then ex-wife Paula sort of popped her head around the room and she said, um, Penny and Bjorn are on the telly, they're on the TV with, with you know on the Eurovision. She said, Penny and Bjorn are on the telly. She said, she said they look ridiculous. They've got silver boots on or something. And I'd pop my head around. I said, Oh, well, that's fun, yeah. I didn't really think about it. And then she came in a bit later and she said, You'll never believe it. Those two Swedish drunks have won the bloody Eurovision Top Contest. And I said, I said well, that's all right. And she said, I can't believe it. So it's really funny.
course, you're hugely known for your involvement with the Rubettes, uh, Sugar Baby Love, your track with Wayne. But the yeah. origins of that actually came from the actually the idea of doing a, a rock and roll musical. Is that right? That is correct. I was doing a rock, I think it was called Johnny and the Jukebox or something. It was, it was kind of, and I think the script was a bit weak, but it would have got better. But it was like a 50s musical. And producers in the West End said, oh, no, 50s can't be that. And then about four years later, Grease came out. Yeah. Or five years later. And so I was right in the first place. And so different songs that Rubettes did were, were from that musical. They were fun songs. They were fun. And so were the Rubettes formed basically to promote that song? Was it basically, was it originally a studio creation that? No, it, 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 Wayne rang me up and said, hi, I'm in Newcastle, I'm looking at a band, you've got to see them. And he said, can you, can you get up here? And he, he was in Newcastle, and I, I said, what, what time are they on? He said, eight o'clock. And I said, well, it's half past five now. And he said, well, get a plane up here, do get some out. I said, okay, okay. <laughs> and so I, I nipped down to Heathrow, got on a plane and went up to Newcastle, and, and, um, and I had to get a train then and get a taxi, which took me longer than to, to get from Heathrow to Newcastle. But um, I walked into this, like, working man's club at, like, five to eight and sat down, and they came on at eight o'clock. And he was right. They were fantastic. That band was Shiwadi Wadi. And they, they were great, great stage act. So we got chatting to them and the, the idea that they would do Sugar Baby Love and different songs. Uh, anyway, it didn't work out for whatever reason. And I was going to do it myself because originally I was going to sing these myself, like the Rubettes as a band, my own band, as it were. And Wayne said, oh, well, no, what, what producer, why, why, why don't you just sort of, um, why don't we do it with another band? So he, he formed the Rubettes. And the person I've been doing the musical with, Winchester, between her and me, we cobbled up the name, which was after my friend's car and her friend, Shane. He had a little um, mini, a 60s mini car. And it was like a maroon colour, like a wine colour. Because he used to call it Ruby, that's right, Ruby. Let's go in Ruby, and it said like so. And so um, she said, how about Ruby? And because the, the Ru- Rubettes, Ruby. <laughs> and uh, so then, then we, we did a record with them. And, and they, were, they were very good musicians. They were very, very good. And so the sound was good. I was about to ask about that because it's it's not only a great song, it is such a fantastic production in terms of how the song is laid with the harmonies. And oh, yeah. yeah. W- was that something that you, you had an idea for or was it something that developed in the studio? Oh, no, I knew exactly what it was or what, was, what was it, it was going to be. Yeah, no, I did that. I'm a bit like that, a bit sort of manic about that sort of thing. It's got to be like this and it's got to be like that, you know. I can't stand it if it's just no throwaway stuff. I don't do that in any records. You must have known you were onto a good thing, though, compared to some of the other songs, surely. We did. We, 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 felt, it, we felt it was a hit record. But I remember driving along in, uh, I had one of those Inspector Morse-type Jaguars at the time, and, and I can remember because of this, I think. But I, I, I was driving along some in the countryside, and in those days, and still today, I mean, records could could go a certain way in the charts, and then they could drop out for, for any number of reasons, um, not just because it was a bad record or a good record, just there could be reasons why, yeah. why it just dropped out of the charts. It could have been like the distribution wasn't right or something wasn't right. And I was listening to the top 10 or the top 50, I think it was, something like that, 
and and I was driving along, and it was and it had been in about number thirty or something like that. And then I heard that it was like uh, I expected to be like number twenty five maybe this week, but then it wasn't. And then I thought, oh dear, and then it was like mm. it got to twenty. 15, 10, 5. I thought, God, it's gone. It's not, you know, it's dropped out. It can't jump that much. And and then it was like a number three, a number two, and I thought, oh, my goodness. It's, you know, so I'm driving along, and, and he said, and now the biggest climb of the week from number 30 to number two, from number one, two, I, I nearly drove into a ditch. I just couldn't believe it. I was so shocked, you know. So, <laughs> it was a real shock to the system because I'd, I'd well resigned myself to Oh, just my luck, you know, that sort of thing. So it was kind of funny.
as a writer and producer in that period, when you were talking about the songs that that would have been in that musical. So a jukebox jive is almost as catchy as Sugar Baby Love, the follow-up. Well, again, that, that was from the musical. Yeah. So was the other, the Rubettes did one called Way Back in the 50s. And that was the opening song where the kind of stage was so people like in the 1950s frozen. And it went way back in the 50s, man, when I was in my teens <laughs> and watching all those movie stars on the set. And then it goes, don't play, and then they start dancing. But um, it's a big lesson to me that, that if you think you know something or you think you, you've got an idea, don't let anybody talk you out of it. Yeah. I was sort of talked out of it. I was, I was right, really, but I was just talked out of it. Not a, not a good thing, that. If you, if, you, if you think you're right about it, you probably are, probably right, you know, unless it's you, something ridiculous, like you're going to fly your own rocket to Mars or something, you know. <laughs> If it's earthly and it's, it's doable, if you're keen enough, you can probably do it. You know, probably will happen. That's my way of looking at it. There was there a lot of songs that um, you'd written for, for that musical? There were quite a few. I can't remember all of them offhand, but yes, yeah, quite a few. It'd make a good collection of material to assemble, really, if that was ever possible. Yes, well, that, that, that's a thought, really. Um, it would be interesting to... Um, to dig out the original script or something, you know. Mm. It is, it's probably pretty rubbishy, the script, because, um, I mean, over the years, I've got better at script writing. There's a definite way of doing it where you don't do it. And I, I think then I just sort of just wrote, I don't know. Just, um, so, yeah, it would, 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 would be interesting to do a sort of some sort of something on it, yeah.
We next go to Petula Clark, No Such Thing as a Miracle no. from her I'm the Woman You Need album from 1975. Was that a demo or were you in, any, had any involvement with that? Yes, I produced the record. Oh. I think um, she flew in on the morning from Switzerland into Pie Records, I think it was. I recorded her that morning. She's very impressive. She, she, was, she was absolutely rehearsed, like she knew them like that without the words, anything. And she just simply hit it in one go, one take. That was it. And and she she's always sounds like Petula Clark. She never sounds like anybody else. You know, you just sort of switch the switch the machine on and that's it, you've got her, you know. She's very, very distinctive, very accurate in what she does, good singer, good singer and very well rehearsed. Came in, nailed it, went, you know, sort of. So now to uh, Mac and Katie Kassoon, Sugar Candy Kisses. That actually was from the rock and roll musical, it, it said. Was that true? Do you know, I can't remember. No, I don't think it actually was. Right. No, it was one of the songs about when I was first dating my ex-wife. We were kind of, um, it was like summertime. We used to sort of, 
had a flat round at Holland Park, and in Holland Park itself, you know, that there was a street called Holland Park, right? And there was a park called Holland Park. Now they're hugely expensive. You couldn't be around there now, you know. But um, and we used to meet, we used to walk in Holland Park and things like that, and we used to talk late at night. And I, I think it was that it was me reminiscing about that really. Some candy dances. And so Mac and Kitty Kassoon, they'd been around the music scene since the, the late 60s. That's right. Was this on your, your own label state now by this time? Maybe, yeah. But um, I, I never took much interest in the record, in the record company because I'm not, I just never considered myself to be like, to ever want to run a record company. Whose idea was the, the label then? That was Wayne's idea. Right. He, you know, he was in love with that sort of thing. And with the business side of things, why well, I, I never was really. And still today, uh, I'm a writer, producer, singer-songwriter. That's who I am, just basically. I, I, whatever I do outside of that is is a sort of um, is a diversion from that, which I come back to. So um, I have sort of dabbled in making, you know, films that sort of thing as an exec producer and that sort of thing, but. It's something I like to achieve from a script point of view. Yeah. The actual business side of it, I don't like. I, I, I'm not really interested in business activity. When did you start working with Wayne? Basically, Wayne liked the business side of things. And, and I used to say, look, we're producers. Why don't we just leave it at that? But he'd monitor And I, I said, the problem with record companies is they're great when they're doing well. Yeah. But when they're not, you've still got the same expenses, like any business, really. Yeah. And there are two ways of doing business. There's the organic way, where you make the food in your kitchen, you sell it at your front gate. You've got no kind of um, outgoings, really. Or you can go sort of national and have vans driving your food around everywhere. Well, that's all right while you're selling your food. But when it doesn't sell, you've still got all the vans, to all the companies. It is the problem with companies. Whereas as producers, we were just like making the food in our own kitchen, as it were, and, and a much easier life on music. And, and Wayne just got so into the business side of things that it was like a nightmare. To me, it was like a nightmare in the end. Just about everything that could go wrong went wrong. You know? So you went into film and TV? Well, I, I did all sorts of things when I parted company with Wayne. I, a, I was broke because, well, I have to say it. I mean, the money was squandered as far as I could see, you know, just like mm. I would lend the record company this money, that money, like a lot of money, then that would be wasted on something else. It was like a nightmare. And um, I left, you know, I was, I was for all intents and purposes broke. So I, I started doing orchestral work for um, television, conducting sort of fairly large orchestras and writing orchestral scores. And uh, I went on from there, really. And then I uh, did lots of adverts and um, stuff like that, you know. Oh, honey, I'm so in love with you. Say we'll always be together. Tell me you love me too.
final track, Liverpool Bay, which obviously is one of your recent singles. And that seems to be a song that reflects on your Liverpool heritage and memories and reflections. Yes, well, basically, the Liverpool Bay is the area of water where the, the River Mersey flows out into, or and it comes in that way. And, and that stretches right up to Wales, North Wales, and right up the North Coast. What it has is in enormous beaches. They are huge. Uh, and in the south, you can't imagine how big they are, with the tide going out for a mile. Yeah. And then it might be five miles long. So the Liverpool Bay is about those beaches and how, when I was there, I kind of took the whole place for granted. Like, and so I guess most Liverpool people did and do. That so you have these amazing beaches that look over to North Wales and things like that, the mountains. But also you have this massive shipping industry, huge ships sailing in and out. All the time it was packed with these huge cargo ships going in and out and massive things. And so the song really, though, is, is probably about, it's basically about anybody leaving a big, leaving a small place and going to a big city. The big city, you, will, you probably will do better hopefully, um, but you will, there will be aspects of the smaller place that where you came from that you'll miss. But having said that, often you can't go back because the place has changed, you've changed, it's changed, the people have changed, everything's changed. So it's like a kind of memory that, that's actually been erased, but it's still in your memory. Yeah. It was a kind of eulogy to a period of time in Liverpool that, that I never thought was special, but it is, of course. Uh, I didn't, or put it this way, I didn't really appreciate it at the time. These big, I used to walk with my mother's dog on the, on the beach, and it's just like the huge desert, you know, like, so that, that area, I would say that the River Mersey flows into that bay is the Liverpool Bay, and amazing beaches on the sand dunes. My mother lived on the river and I used to go into, I used to go onto the beach with my mother's dog to a place called Liso, right. which was Viking originally. All that area is Viking. And there's a lighthouse there. And, and, and I, I mentioned that lighthouse, you see. But it's anybody leaving a, big, a small place to a big city. Are you just continually writing now? You've got that um, news going? Yes, I'm enjoying writing a song and singing it myself. I didn't think I would, but I, but I am. It's therapeutic. It's sort of it's it's it's, it's nice. You know, if you if you're writing an advert or you're writing this, it's a bit of a cold fish, isn't it? Really, you can't get excited about some soap powder or something. You know, well, I suppose some people can. What a pleasure it's been to talk to you today and, and talk about just a selection of the work that you've been involved with over the years. Um, you've, you've also got a, a great website that has um, an overview of your uh, career, TonyWaddington.com, and a, a YouTube channel as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, that surprised me, that. That surprised me. That, as I say, I've always been rather surprised that I've always been a backroom person, really. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of pleasantly surprised that anybody interested in what a pleasure it is to talk to you. I mean, such great music and um, it, it speaks for itself, really. Thank you. And, and um, I've enjoyed it. Uh, enjoyed talking to you.
was out on the town last night till the morning light can't seem to get it right kind of missing home always on the phone what i'm going through where's it going to i feel young somehow but i know i'm older now i remember when i was happy then now it's in the past shame it didn't last guess we never know where it's gonna go i remember my mom's radio and the tunes it used to play and i remember the ships that sailed across the liverpool listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time 
All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you. Thank you.